Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. I understand we're going to be continuing our discussion about what happens after you die. That's what we will do, but then if time permits, toward the end of the class period, I'll talk about a new decision by the D.C. Court of Appeals that has to do with the Equal Rights Amendment, and it's a decision that I think many of us will find very pleasing. But we've been talking about a series called You're Dead, Now What? And we began with the reality of heaven, but we talked about heaven in the first session that we dealt with here and how the Old Testament and the New Testament both speak about the reality of life after death and heaven, how Jesus promises that if he goes away, that he will be going away to prepare a place for us and that he will return for us. And he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So we have the word of our Lord that there is the reality of heaven after death. But we also saw in the second session that we talked about that we don't immediately go to heaven when we die, that there is a state in between. And we saw that that state is that we are with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, Paul says. And to depart and be with Christ is better, he says. In other words, it's a blessed state. But it's not the complete or perfect state that we have in heaven itself. That that will take place only after we are reunited with our bodies at the resurrection. The third session, then, we talked about the reality of hell. And as much as people would like to pretend that hell does not exist, the plain fact of the, Bible, of the matter is the Bible speaks about hell over and over again, Old and New Testaments alike, and most of the New Testament references to Hades or hell are by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, gentle Jesus, meek and mild as we call him, and yet he is probably more than any other one in Scripture, the one who tells us about the reality of hell. And he does so because he loves us. He does so because he wants the best for us, and he wants to warn us of the danger of hell. And also, of course, he died to save us from having to go to hell. But now, today, we're going to look to the question about the resurrection, about judgment, and about eternity. And what does all of this mean? What happens, then, as we approach the eternal state? I have not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for us. That's true. None of us really know what exactly it's going to be like in heaven. But the fact is, the Bible does tell us quite a bit about heaven. And we can certainly take seriously and trust what the Bible says. So we'll be looking at what we know about heaven. And what we know, and of course, that it is certainly something that we can be looking forward to. But Let's begin with the resurrection. And as you say, when we die, our spirits will be with the Lord. Our bodies will be resting in the grave. But there will be a time of resurrection. Job understood this way, way back 
long before Christ. In fact, many believe Job is written as early as 2000 BC, even before Moses came and wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Job says in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon this earth. And though after my skin worms shall destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He knows that there is going to be a resurrection. And we read about that resurrection taking place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 17. Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. There's an issue that I'm not going to get into here because this issue divides Christians. We Not that we shouldn't be divided sometimes, but I see no reason we need to address it here. And that is concerning, well, to use a theological term, eschatology, which eschatos means last things or last days and the theology of the last days. And people call themselves amillennial, premillennial, or postmillennial. Millennium simply refers to a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. Those who are amillennial say that there will be no literal thousand-year reign on earth. Not that they necessarily don't believe those passages, but they say they're not to be interpreted literally. And that that period of the thousand-year reign is either the church age, or it refers to heaven, or depending on the context, maybe either or both. But no literal thousand-year reign, that's why they say a millennial. And then there are those who say they are millennialists, that they believe there will be a literal thousand-year reign. And those are divided usually into two camps. One, those who call themselves post-millennial, meaning that Christ is going to come at the close of the millennium. He'll be reigning over the earth during the millennium, but he'll be reigning from heaven through his saints who are occupying the earth. And then there are those who call themselves pre-millennial. They believe that Christ is going to return before the millennium, and he will reign on earth with his saints during that thousand-year period. Now, those who call themselves pre-millennial are divided into several camps concerning what's called the tribulation. By tribulation, we mean a period of great trouble, great persecution here on the earth, a seven-year period of tribulation. And the question is, are we going to be here during that period of tribulation? There are some who believe that we are going to be called up out of the earth before that begins. The pre-tribulation rapture, rapture meaning departure or taken away, pre-tribulation rapture period position this is called. There are some who believe that, no, we will be raptured, taken away only at the close of the tribulation, meaning that the second coming of Christ and this rapture or taking away are referring to the same event. 
Some who believe it'll be in the middle of the tribulation. There's several other positions as well. I am not going to address that issue. I'll say what I believe quickly so everybody knows where I stand. And that's that I personally believe in the premillennial return of Jesus Christ and in the pre-tribulation rapture. That's my personal position. I have held that for, well, all my adult life, although I'm probably less dogmatic about it than I would have been some time ago. But there are sincere Bible-believing Christians who hold all of these viewpoints. And what I say is that regardless of which position you hold, that this much we know. We know that Christ wins in the end, and we win with him. I know that because I've read the last several books in Revelation, and so I know that to be true. But we'll get into that issue further today. But at that time, we will be given a resurrection body. That is, the body that we have right now will be ours again, but it will be a transformed body. You know, sickness, probably be at the peak of health, won't be omnipotent, that it's an all-powerful body, the way our Lord's body is all-powerful, but it will be far, far greater than anything that we've ever experienced on earth, no matter what kind of good shape we're in. Still, I think we're always going to be a little lower than the angels, even though we will have fellowship with angels. Well, what happens then at the resurrection? As I say, we'll be our bodies will be united with us, and we will then have that resurrection body. But then we will stand before God. And we see several references to our standing before God. One is what we call the judgment seat of Christ. And another, which is called the great white throne. As you may know, Brian, there in the Zion National Park in Utah, there is a large, almost square-topped, mountain there called the great white throne it's magnificent to behold and especially if you know the theology behind it but there is a question as to whether the judgment seat of christ and the great white throne refer to one and the same judgment personally i believe that they refer to two different judgments and that the judgment seat of christ is for believers and believers alone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive back the things done through the body according to what he did, whether good or evil. The judgment seat of Christ is called here, and this will be a judgment based on what we do whether it is good or whether it is evil. Now, that sounds like salvation by works. I would emphasize, however, that the judgment seat of Christ, as I read it, is only for believers. Paul here is addressing, in Corinthians, Corinthian believers. And when he is saying, we must all appear, I believe he is referring to all believers before the judgment seat of Christ. Unbelievers will stand before the great white throne judgment of Revelation. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, is for believers alone. And 
This is going to be a judgment where all believers stand. Now, if you are worried about going to hell, I can tell you this. If you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, don't worry about being sent to hell. If you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you've already made it to heaven. The question is, are you going to have rewards in heaven? And there will, I believe, be rewards in heaven based upon works. There's a passage here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. I emphasize that last phrase there, their works do follow them. Works don't precede us into heaven. Works don't open the door to heaven for us. But they follow us into heaven, which tells us that the things that we do here on earth do have eternal significance. I believe in salvation by grace through faith. But I think it's possible to emphasize that so strongly that we think that our works are completely unimportant. They are important. They're important not only because our neighbors need our good works. Luther once said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so we're commanded to do them. And they also provide a witness of our faith. As James says, I by my works will show you my faith. Luther once said concerning faith that we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. What he meant by that is true saving faith is accompanied by works. If your faith is true, it will manifest itself in works. So works are of eternal significance. And there is going to be judgment in heaven of all believers based upon their works. That's not for punishment. It is for the purpose of determining reward in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and starting in verse 12, let's go back a couple of verses on that. Let's go back all the way to verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. Yes, we perform works for the Lord, and we shall receive reward for those works. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's cultivated field, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth upon it. But let every man take heed how he buildeth upon it. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, it is on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that we have our salvation. But we build upon that foundation, 
with our good works. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built upon it, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. The judgment seat of Christ is described here with the metaphor of a fire. It's going to be like a fire. Now, what does fire do? Well, it destroys the impure, and it refines the pure. You put ore into fire, and as I recall, in order for gold ore to go through a refining fire, that fire has to be somewhere over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 10 times the boiling point. And all of the dross, that is the rock and so on, is thereby burned, melted away. And that which is gold shines forth pure. Anyway, that's the idea that our works are going to be placed before God at the judgment seat of Christ. As we stand before Christ, we may think we've really done some remarkable works for him. And we lay them before him. And if they're wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to be consumed in the fire. We'll be saved, but we'll be left without them. If they are gold, silver, and precious stones, they'll be refined by the fire. Part of them is going to be burned and melted away, but part of it is going to be refined to shine purely. In other words, some of our works will turn out to be not good works at all. We thought we were serving Christ. We thought we were doing great things. We thought we were engaging in great works on earth, but... As far as Christ sees, they are as nothing. Why would works be considered to be as nothing? Well, one reason would probably be that they're done with only worldly intent, that is, only to serve the world, not to advance the cause of Christ. Another reason might be that they are done with impure motives. Let's face it, we all have impure motives. The best of Christians operates with motives that are in part impure, we have pride, we have sin, you know, we have the old man within us, and so we still, even the good things we do, we do them with some spirit of pride and so on within them, and when those good works are laid before God, the pride, the bad parts of them are going to be melted away, burned away. The good is going to shine forth as gold and silver and precious stones. What it means is that we will be rewarded for those works that we've done that are good. You think about when Jesus was in the temple, and there in the temple he saw all of these people leaving these lavish gifts into the treasury and giving probably great sums of money and offerings, but being very 
open about the way he did it. Want everybody to see, oh, look what I'm giving. See how generous, see what a great believer I am. And so they put those generous gifts into the offering. And then here is this widow with her last mite. And she puts that mite into the offering. And Jesus said, she has given more than all the rest. Because she gave all she had. They gave out of their abundance. Yes, they gave a lot, but probably not an amount that they're going to really miss. But she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had. It's been said that it's not how much you give, but how much you have left over that counts. I'm going to say, though, that it's really neither. It is the spirit in which you give. This may sound strange, but I am going to suggest to you that if that widow had given her last might, but gave it in a spirit of pride, look how self-sacrificing I am, or maybe in a spirit of bitterness, that the Lord would despise that gift just like he despised those who gave so lavishly. Someone could give a great deal of money or a great deal of other kind of gift. But, and if they do so, even if they do so out of great abundance, if they do so in the true spirit of wanting to serve Christ, he honors and respects and is rewarded by that gift. So it's really neither how much you have nor how much you have left over. It is your motive that counts. And again, nobody's motives are 100% pure. They're all going to have to be purified there in that refiner's fire. But also, it's are you motivated by what you do strictly in your own power? Or do you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, what happens when we receive gifts? What happens when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he rewards us for what we have done? Well, we're talking about crowns as being the rewards in heaven. Crowns that we receive. But we read in Revelation chapter 4, where the elders lay their crowns before the throne of God. In other words, will we be wearing these crowns for all eternity? As a military man, I tend to identify them kind of like military medals and ribbons that you might wear in your uniform that reflect various campaigns that you were involved in. Maybe this is for what I did during the great Roman persecution, or this is what I did. Well, we'll save this for the next hour then, but we've got a lot more to consider, the nature of the rewards, but then the great white throne and eternity. Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, I was intrigued as you were talking about uh, rewards pertaining to our, our eternal rewards and uh, crowns and so forth. You've got my attention. Now, I'd, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on this. I think we're going to be very surprised in heaven as to what rewards are considered great, what works are 
worthy of great reward and which ones are not. Think of great evangelists and the like, and they must be getting great rewards, maybe. But maybe God will look on the heart and find out that the heart was not what it was supposed to be. And maybe their rewards will not be what we suppose. We'll find people there who perhaps have fallen into sin from time to time. And yet, God nevertheless rewards the heart. But what about somebody that maybe is in heaven but doesn't have a whole lot of reward? Think about the thief on the cross who asked Jesus, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He will be blessed to be there in paradise with Christ and ultimately in heaven with Christ. But my guess is that he probably didn't have a whole lot of opportunity in his life to earn reward. Well, people that in heaven and maybe were expecting great reward and find that no, by works, we're all burned up as wood, hay, and stubble, or they're very small. Will they feel deprived? Will they feel jealous of those who have great reward? People that I thought I was greater than him, but maybe that was my sin, thinking that, my pride. But I don't believe so. I think everyone in heaven will be content, will understand that what they received was still a matter of grace, that it is by grace that they're in heaven at all. Luther put it like this. He said, there will be no degrees of bliss in heaven, but there will be degrees of glory. No degrees of bliss, but there will be degrees of glory. In other words, some will receive honors in heaven. However, all in heaven are going to be happy. There was a friend of mine that we were married 52 years ago, not the friend of mine, but he was there at our wedding 52 years ago. He was a Bible preacher that Marlene and I had both sat under for some time. He was a school teacher, as a matter of fact, but he nevertheless taught classes and preached there and the little church that we attended, the church where we met. I had the occasion to see him just last summer. I was on my way through Iowa at the time and stopped in to visit him. I hadn't seen him probably for 50 plus years. And he was over 90, 95, I believe. And his mind was clear. He remembered us well, remembered the wedding well, remember our times together in the church. But he said something to me that I found very interesting. He was thinking, of course, you get older like that, you start thinking about rewards in heaven and so on. But he said that in heaven, I think everybody's going to have a full bucket of blessing. But not everyone's going to have the same size bucket. Some might have a one-pint bucket or a one-gallon bucket. Some might have a five-gallon bucket or a ten-gallon bucket, but everybody's bucket is going to be full. And that's a very good way of looking at it. Again, we're speculating, but I think that's very wise. Well, that's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is, as I say, I believe, only for believers. And if you see someone using that passage to unbelievers, if somebody wanted me to put into a brief about abortion, 
a legal brief about abortion and put it in the, the brief warning the justices of the danger of ruling for the abortionists, saying we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I wouldn't put that in the brief. First of all, because I wasn't sure it was appropriate, but secondly, because it wasn't even a proper use of that scripture. The abortionists aren't going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, not unless they get saved. And so this was inappropriate. But unbelievers will appear before what is called the great white throne judgment. And we read about this great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Chapter 20 in verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The books of this great white throne judgment, I believe, are the books that talk about all our deeds, everything that we've done, all of our sins. The book of life is the book containing the names of those who have trusted Christ for their salvation. Those who stand before the great white throne do not find their names written in the book of life, and so they are judged by the books which contain their sins, and those sins are found worthy of hell, and so they are cast into the lake of fire. We talked about hell last time and saw where St. John Chrysostom made the statement that we search not for where hell is, but how we may flee it. And, but again, the great white throne is a judgment for unbelievers where their works are judged by God and found to be sinful and found to be deserving of eternal damnation. Now let's move on from what we've seen already, the resurrection, the judgment seat of Christ for believers, the great white throne for unbelievers, and now let's talk about eternity. The new heaven and the new earth. Let's look at this as we go into Revelation chapter 21, picking up where we left off, starting in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, 
Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Okay, so what do we see about heaven? What's that first hour in heaven going to be like? Greetings? Meeting old family members? Old friends? Receptions? Tours? One suggests that maybe that first hour in heaven is going to have to be spent reconciling with other believers that we had disputes with here on earth. We don't do that on earth. Maybe that'll what we'll be doing in heaven for the first first hour or so to make all things right because no such grudges or quarrels will be allowed to continue in heaven. The language here makes it a little hard for us to understand what is going on. This new city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John, the author of this book, sees in his vision this new Jerusalem as a great city coming down from heaven to the earth. Is that heaven? Is the new Jerusalem heaven? Is the new Jerusalem earth? Is there a difference between those? There are some Christians who believe that believing saved Jews will inherit the new earth while Christians will be in the new heaven. I don't think scripture teaches that. I don't think there is going to be a distinction between believing Jews and believing Christians in heaven. It would appear to me that we will all inhabit this new Jerusalem, which is formed in heaven and which comes down to earth and thereby transforms the earth. As far as floating around in the clouds up there in heaven, remember we are going to have resurrection bodies. They'll be much better bodies than we have now, but they will be physical bodies. When we see in chapter 21 of verse 3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them. I'm inclined to think that eternity in heaven is the new Jerusalem here on earth. But again, this is not entirely clear, but the meaning clearly is that heaven and earth are both going to be transformed at this time. It may simply be that the distinction that we see right now between heaven and earth, and we think of these as being as far apart as possible, but that the distinction between heaven and earth will be bridged, that they will be much closer, and that they will be almost as one. And we wonder, what is this new glorious city, this new heaven? What is it going to be like? Well, we see the description there, having a glory of God. Chapter 21 and verse 11 of Revelation. 
and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written on the gates, which are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, talk about the various gates and so on, and the precious stones that make up each of these. The foundation of the wall were garnished with all matters of precious stones. First foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, and so on. And we wonder, is that literal? Is that a literal description of what heaven is going to be? I don't think we know for sure whether that is a literal description or whether we take that as metaphor. But remember what we said last week, we were talking about hell. Is hell literal fire? And we saw where John Calvin made the statement that if this is metaphor, it is only because the reality of hell is even more terrifying than the metaphor fire can make it appear to be. I would say the same is true of heaven. That if this description of streets of gold and gates and foundations of sapphire and so on, that if this is metaphor, it is because the reality is even more wonderful than the metaphor, even more wonderful than what we can imagine. Luther acknowledged that there's a lot about heaven that we don't know. He said, as little as children in their mother's womb know about their birth in the world outside, so little do we know about life everlasting. But some think about heaven, some believers even think about heaven with a little bit of apprehension. I like the way John Eldridge puts this. He says, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever. Amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and ever? That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart, and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. One thing we read, though, is that we will all be changed. We will have a thirst for Christ and a love for worship beyond anything that we can imagine today. Nevertheless, I don't believe heaven is just an unending church service. Some say that time is going to be different in heaven, that we'll, beyond, we'll be beyond the realm of time and space. And to some extent, I think that is true. But I don't think it means that we're just floating in spacelessness and timelessness. After all, we will have resurrection bodies. And Christ will have his physical body. And I believe in heaven, Christ will still have the marks in his hands and in his feet and in his side as a constant reminder of what he did at the cross to make all this possible for us. I don't think it's going to be completely spaceless, completely timeless, 
But I don't believe time and space will govern us the way they do now. Just think in this world today, how much we are limited and controlled by time and space. We get up in the morning and think, okay, I have to be at work in an hour and a half. It's going to take me 15 minutes to eat. It's going to take me 20 minutes to shower and shave and dress. And it's going to take, let's see, the office is eight miles away and I'm going, I can drive 40 miles an hour, probably 30 in rush hour. So it's going to take me this many minutes to get there. Just think about how much our lives are controlled by time and space. The decisions we make. In fact, our whole lives are based on that. We're little children. As little children, we're in the nursery and then kindergarten and then in grade school and high school and then college and the first roughly third of our lives, perhaps, or fourth of our lives is spent preparing us for an occupation, and then probably the next half of it is spent living that occupation, and then the next fourth of it is maybe spent retiring from that occupation and getting ready to leave the world. But in heaven, I don't think we're going to be controlled by time the way we are here on earth, or controlled by space the way we are here on earth. How that's going to work, frankly, I don't know. I think there will be work to do in heaven. Revelation 7.15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. I think there's going to be things to do. God will have work for us. It'll be work that we love, work that we enjoy. It'll be work that'll be meaningful in furtherance of the kingdom. Will there be marriages in heaven? Well, Jesus says we'll be like the angels in heaven who neither marry nor give, are given in marriage. However, I don't think that means that we won't have special relationships with the ones that we were married to here on earth. That our knowledge will be greater in heaven than it is on earth. We know our spouse here on earth, we'll know our spouse better in heaven. And so, yes, I believe we'll have special relationships there. Will there be animals in heaven? Well, we read that the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. If you don't believe in a literal millennium, that has to be heaven. If you do believe in a literal millennium, then I think it's still very possible that God can recreate animals, maybe even recreate specific pets. Maybe he will. What about babies? What about old people? I don't know whether everybody's going to be the same age. I was speaking of this once for a church in North Dakota, and this farmer, an older man, the farmer just asked me, well, I'm going to be as ugly in heaven as I am now. And I told him, Ralph, you're going to be handsomer than ever. And... But at any rate, I think we're all going to be at the healthiest stage of our lives, whether that means we're all going to be the same age. I don't think that anybody's going to be destined to be a baby for his entire life or destined to be an elderly person his entire life. But we may be different ages, but I think there's going to be good health and soundness of mind for all. I think there'll be concerts, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, good practice for what heaven is actually going to be like. There'll be plays, athletic events. I've even said there's going to be skiing in heaven. I can give you my theology on that, that heaven is cold because hell is hot, and heaven is white because hell is dark, and white and cold means snow, and 
I don't mean you have to know how to ski to get into heaven, but if you do already know how to ski, you won't have to spend the first 100,000 years on the bunny slope. But, no, I'm kidding about all that, but I think there'll be wilderness in heaven. I think there'll be all kinds of things that people will enjoy and that people will love. Dwight Pentecost of Dallas Theological Seminary wrote a book about heaven, and he called it Things to Come. And among the things that he said we'll see in heaven are, number one, a life of fellowship with him. <clears throat> Quick aside, how much time do I have? <clears throat> you got about uh, four minutes. Okay. <clears throat> First Corinthians 13, 12, we'll see him face to face, life of fellowship with him. It'll be a time of rest. We'll probably sleep in heaven, but we won't be tired in the way we are today. We won't be worn out. Revelation 14, 13. It'll be a life of full knowledge. Then I shall know in full, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But I don't think that means we'll be all-knowing in the way God is all-knowing. It'll be a life of holiness, Revelation 21, 27. A life of joy, Revelation 21, 4. A life of service. And his servants shall serve him, as we saw, a life of abundance. I will give him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely, a life of glory, and a life of worship. There will be worship, real worship in heaven, and we will love it. And we will see him face to face, because we will be cleansed from sin. The important thing is not to know every detail about what heaven's going to be. And I've only scratched the surface. There is so much I don't know. The important thing is to know that heaven can be ours. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. But then he added something. He was speaking to Mary and Martha about Lazarus. He added this, Believest thou this? That's the choice each of us has to make. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. However, whether we're saved or whether we're lost, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we are going to face physical death. That's something all of us are facing. So how can we die well? What does it mean to die well? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Well, that's something to look forward to. And by the way, I do like, I like that take on, on heaven. And I, I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one who looked at the prospect of one long church service as, uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I remember as a kid, I think back to the, to the movie, uh, oh, what was it called? Uh, Interstellar. Remember when they're on the planet with the extreme gravity and, one hour here is seven years on earth. That's what church felt like as a kid many times to me. But uh, no, the, every, everything else you described, though, the, the prospects of, of truly being connected with, with the Almighty and, and those who love him, you know, what's, what's not to, to love about that? Well, I think one of my law students once said to me, he said, you know, Professor, if I had one hour yet to live, I'd want to spend that hour in your class. What a well, compliment. I, to hear that. I said, oh, really? Well, well, why is that? Because one hour in your class is like eternity. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> what a great note to end on. 